This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Einstein and Go-Go for 2016. Can you believe it? It's freaking me out. I remember when that Space 1999 show seemed like so far into the future. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radio Therapy who have had uh, a good hour so far. And um, we're going to give you an hour now of science through till uh, midday, 12 o'clock. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You're perky. I know. It's science <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit of a, a drought. Although, although our fill-ins... Uh, the veterinarian type people have been fabulous. I'm not sure if you've listened to any of their shows, but they've done a really good job. So former guests of ours, of course, we've um, trained them up well, but they did a great job. Dr. Lauren? Good morning. It's um, quite bizarre to be back in the studio. It's been a long time for me, but very exciting. A bit of time off because of your problems in Europe. Yes, yes. I had an adventure in Europe where I ended up um, getting some surgery and stuff, but uh, all better, all on the road to recovery. Good to have you back. And Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, nice to see you. Yeah, are you well? I am. Had a nice uh, summer break. Very good, very good. I read two books over the summer. My PB. Wait. <laughs> See, that's the difference between having kids and not having kids. I think I read about a hundred books. Well, you know, and, and the cricket with the West Indies was a little bit oh, let down. Well, okay. A couple of games cancelled, so you know, I had plenty of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Good. You know, uh, Doctor Shame, I'm really impressed because I believe the book I see in front of you does not have big pictures. It doesn't. It has. In fact, the pictures are all, as I say, on the outside, um, which is something rare for me. Uh, but no, I did read two books, and I'm going to review one of them today and one next week. Um, so, to the person who wrote the one today block your ears because the review's not going to be that favourable <laughs> but the one next week is really good so uh, anyway I'd you know, like to give out warnings Liv's doing our Twitter feed for those of you who follow along and of course uh, we do put a lot of information on uh, Twitter and on Facebook if you want to follow along um, we've got a couple of guests in the studio uh, today but before we get on to them we're going to do some news as per usual Dr Crystal we'll start with you Crystal talking about CRISPR yeah I've, I've spent some of my summer uh, catching up and um, really looking into one of the hottest topics in the science world, a new gene editing technology called CRISPR. And um, yeah, this is going to be a big cha- game changer for biology. I read I read one quote that said it's the it's the biggest thing in biology since PCR. Um, and so, you know, as a technique uh, for changing and editing the genome, it's 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 incredible. And uh, just this week, um, a regulatory committee in the UK has given researchers from the Francis Crick Institute in London permission to use this CRISPR technique in human embryos. Um, and this is one of the first applications to be able to, um, to take this technology and apply it at the very earliest stages of life. Now, you'll recall last year um, the, the CRISPR technology started to get a bit of press because there was a bit of a world congress on what the ethics were around using this technology. The thing about CRISPR is it allows you to engineer a change in a DNA sequence um, that's in a way that is cheap, quick and easy. And this is something we really haven't had the chance to do. Previously, you know, gene editing was possible, but um, it took a lot of goes. It was very inefficient. You might try it a 100 times. It only worked once in a particular organism or, or a particular cell. And this CRISPR technology is programmed um, so that you can actually cut DNA exactly at the sequence where you want it to go. So this is like, you know, you, you can just kind of go, mm, here's a genome, I'd like to make a cut there, and you kind of just feed a little bit of sequence into the CRISPR system, 
and say, mm, when you find this, cut here or insert gene here. And we haven't had that fine tunable level of detail before now. So now, you know, being able to alter genes, um, you know, will become even more um, possible. And, you know, this works in yeast, it works in plants, it works in animals, it works in people. And, and we've got the first experiment to see whether or not it works in embryos. Now, this experiment, um, you know, is, is, is it compliant with those sort of ethical guidelines that you cannot alter an embryo for implantation. So, so the, these experiments will be halted at around day seven and, um, and the techniques being used on embryos that have been, uh, ex-IVF, so there's surplus to requirement for IVF, and then have been donated for research. The thing I find most fascinating is which genes they're looking at and why. Because the thing is, it's a, if you think from an experimental point of view, you need to get a readout in seven days, say, yes, we can change a gene, but to actually see what the impact and effect of that will be in that seven-day window. Mm. So they're looking at how a single cell, you know, when, once it's fertilised, actually goes through to form a blastocyst. And a blastocyst is the is the collection of um, cells that are around day sort of five to seven that actually implant. And so it's looking at um, what happens pre-implantation, like, you know, before... You know, at the, at the very earliest stages, and I think the thing that's fascinating is, you know, when you think about the human body in its fullest form, you know, we've got hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of cells. You know, kidney cells, hair cells, skin cells. Mm-hmm. You know, how is it that one single cell goes through and is programmed to become all those different types based on the fact that it has the same, every cell has the same genome? Mm-hmm. And so, there, the, this experiment will actually look at um, those master regulators of, of determining, you know, how one single cell decides, you know, the fate of millions Mm. um and so it's very powerful technology and um and the researchers at the Francis Crick Institute will be starting to undertake these experiments in the next few months. Definitely comes with major responsibility ethically. Mm, absolutely. Uh, this sort of stuff, which is, it, it's, it's ground that we haven't done that well on in the past. So I think hopefully we'll get it right and take I, it slow. I feel and, like this yeah. is being done in the right order. There mm. was, there was a big world congress on whether mm. or not we should do this. The decision was, yes, we should, but you cannot take it past a certain stage, mm. you know, and then, and then the, you know, the, the, this application has been, you know, reviewed and regulated. It's and it's being discussed broadly, I think, yeah. in the media that this is a, something that we're capable of and that we need to decide whether or not it's going to provide the, enough value and yeah. be regulated in a way in which we can um, make sure that the technology is used for the benefit of humans because the, uh, the flip side is the potential benefits of this mm. technology. Oh. Yeah are enormous. Mm. So if you look at patients who've got genetic disorders and they're mm. just like, if there was something that I could do, you know, to not know. pass this on to my children or yeah. to, you know, I would do it in a heartbeat. So. Yeah. And our, one of our guests uh, later today um, from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute is talking about exactly some of those conditions. So that's, um, yeah, it becomes very real when you're mm. a, a parent of a child of that scenario. Definitely. Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Well, I'm going to completely change tax and talk about the Venus flytrap. Um, so everyone knows the Venus flytrap basically from cartoons because it's mm. a very cool plant that catches insects and is carnivorous. I've got some in my backyard. Do you? Haven't caught a single bloody insect. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed that they I'm, survive in Melbourne. Well, it's, it's interesting. I have them sitting, um, cause we had a, a guest on last year who mm. talked about peat moss. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very important interview for me because it had allowed <laughs> me to keep this thing alive. Yeah, it's yeah, right yeah. next to our water tank. So it gets, ah. it, it's always getting water. Whenever yep. I water anything, yep. the last thing I do is dump some water on it. And yeah. it's, it's in a very shady, or a bit of sun, but shady yep. spot. Anyway. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Well, you'll be very interested to know then that they apparently, we've now learned, have the ability to count 
So, so they actually have discovered that they um, are basically using action potentials every time an insect lands on the plant, Mm -hmm. but they actually don't go ahead and attack until the the insect has landed three times, and they're actually not swallowing that insect until it lands five times. So there's this beautiful sort of, you know, very uh, repeatable pattern where the first time the insect lands, the plant sort of enters this ready-to-go mode where it notes the the, the stimulation of the insect hitting it, and it sort of gets ready. The second time the insect hit, the trap starts to close, but it doesn't close all the way. And I have actually seen this on videos of the plants before. And you think, why don't you just close all the way? You know, why, why are you waiting? But it's not until the third time that the insect contacts that it actually, the trap closes tightly. The insect obviously then keeps moving around inside. The fourth time it, it contacts the plant, um, the plant starts to produce a hormone which is linked in with the feeding process. And then the fifth time that that um, contact is made, it actually starts to produce digestive enzymes and oh. that poor insect is in trouble. So it is pretty cool because it's sort of this, you know, very high level kind of processing which you wouldn't think a plant would bother needing to have really but um the theory behind it is that they're making sure that that prey is worthwhile so they're not you know straight away throwing all the enzymes and all the hormones at it they're actually making sure that the insect is going to you know be around to be lunch hmm. yeah. Interesting stuff. yeah very cool stuff but I, it's i guess if you're a plant it, you know that, that process of produ- hormone production and enzyme digestion production would be quite energy intensive yeah that's it and so yeah, well, you want to make sure. sure. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. <laughs> like, is my lunch really coming? Is it, is it really <laughs> worth it? That's it. Yeah. But it is fascinating. So one of the things they found as well is that um, as this process happens, there's actually a, an increase in the production um, of a chemical which allows the plant to take up sodium. And they don't know why. And it just sort of brings home this whole thing that we don't really know how so many processes in the mm. natural world happen. Mm. So we have no idea why the plant would need to take up sodium to, to eat an insect. And so they're now going to basically go forward and actually us, uh, so sequence the genome of the plant uh, so that they can actually work out, you know, what this sodium uptake does in terms it, of digestion. It, it sounds bizarre, though, that, that the plant... I, I don't know whether it can determine the difference between two similar flies. That, 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 and so you can imagine, it's a bit like Russian roulette. You know, yeah. you've got all these flies and they're looking at this Venus flytrap and they think, yeah, I think it's been touched three times. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, I'll give it a crack. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to Bob? Oh, he didn't come back. <laughs> yeah, like, each other you wonder wrong. how it knows or yeah. whether, as as uh, Dr. Crystal says, because it's such an investment, mm. um, it needs a certain frequency or something to be sure that something's actually going to happen that's yeah. worthwhile and, yep. and it's sort of that double checking. So, And it doesn't matter whether it's the same insect or not. Yeah, or, no, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's something there. Yeah, yeah, there's something there. There's definitely something there and not just something that's blown in on the wind. Exactly. Or, yeah, exactly. So. It's interesting. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll keep an eye on mine. Maybe they can't count as well. Yeah, also. no. Well, I'm expecting to see some videos. You know, <laughs> yeah, oh, no. we got a lot of bees in our garden, so maybe the, you know, the, keep the predator bugs going. I say, and yeah, keeps the Venus flytraps hungry. Yes, that's it. Dr. Ray, <laughs> Dr. Shane. So uh, I actually wanted to talk about a uh, bit of climate change modeling because it had a couple neat aspects to it, and that's researchers from Oxford University have shown that the. UK floods that happened in January 2014 were actually, they have simulations that pretty strongly argue it's tied to climate change. Um, now, Wow, because they can't often really definitively no, say that. No, no, and, and mm, it's quite yeah. interesting. And you have to think, well, what do you mean they 
could predict that. It's not like they could go back and predict weather day by day. You got to remember, what does a climate model predict? Mm-hmm. And what it actually predicts is the most accurate you can get down is like a five day rainfall. But you predict things like extreme weather events and their frequency in particular regions. And when you take that into the context specifically of the UK, and that tidal region around the Thames ability to deal with extra water and how little of a change you need to actually end up in a flood situation, the, uh, they did something quite clever because they simulated the world without climate change. So assuming some things didn't happen in terms of rise in temperature, global average temperature or in that region. And then they did it with. And they actually did 134 different simulations. And how they did it was kind of cool because they used a project called Weather at Home where it was using Citizen Science Project. So they used everybody else's extra CPU time on their personal computers to actually get this level of simulation done. Hmm. Uh, and uh, it was something like a, it, It's really interesting. I mean, you have to simulate atmospheric moisture content, flow, and they're not huge changes in terms of the things that we do see, you would say, wow, that looks like a lot of a change. But it actually, in those climate models, shows the sensitivity to a particular region, and you're something like 43% higher in extreme weather events for that month, mm-hmm. like the thunderstorms that led to those floods. Mm-hmm. And and so it's pretty wild that not just the subtleties there, but how they did it. And as they pointed out, I think it was 451 million pounds in insured losses, mm. that this is really about not saying, gosh, is climate change happening, but using climate models to be predictive for financial and monetary reasons. Mm. And, and we know insurance companies already do this looking at actual <laughs> statistics, but um, the implication there is it's also region-specific. So we should be excited about the CPU Weather at Home project because with some of the implications announced in the media about CSIRO, we might not have that national expertise anymore to look at our local region. And we know we've seen that track record in the past where Perth actually worked with CSIRO to predict their changes. And they said, is it a drought or is it climate change? Because we want to know if we should be, build a desalination plant. And that was a good outcome because they said, oh, we should invest in that. Without doing that, you could end up with a desal plant that maybe you're not using in the short term <laughs> and gets a lot of eyebrow raising. Um, so uh, there's some real importance there about having to be able to predict things locally and focus on the region you're in. And that suggests every country is going to need those resources for their own region, for yeah. their own country. So that has some interesting implications for what's come out in the news lately. Yes, certainly the CSIRO story. And I have to say, I mean, it, you know, you see the situation sort of eating itself alive. But whenever you have a scenario where you constrain funding to something, and in this case, it's been we've been talking about this for many years now. Science has had, you know, successive governments constraining its funding and ripping the heart out of science in this country, then, you know, these sorts of things get bad. Mm. And that's what we're seeing now at CSIRO. And regardless of where the money is going from management, um, it's all happening, I think, because of these constraints. And that's mm. that's not a good thing. So it'd be nice to see some more money going in. Um, on a, a very quick but uh, somewhat sombre note, of course, uh, some of you will be aware that Edgar Mitchell uh, died this week. So mm-hmm. he was the uh, lunar module pilot of Apollo 14, um, and sadly he died on the eve of the 45th anniversary of the moon landing, mm-hmm. of his moon landing, which um, is a bit sad. But these guys are all getting to an age mm-hmm. where we sort of expect this is happening, and many of them have passed on now. And he was 85, which I think is a pretty damn good run, mm-hmm. um, given the life expectancy when he was born. Yes. Not not ours now, but the life expectancy when he was born. 85 is a pretty good run. Mm-hmm. So, And it wasn't like he didn't do something dangerous. That's it. it was, he was the last from that crew too, wasn't he? Yeah, it? yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's sad. Yeah, it's, it's sad. It's sad. Mm. But, um, you know... Uh, 
at the same time, NASA's, you know, rolling out the, the new, um, Orion spaceship that's, mm-hmm. uh, now been moved. It's been finished and moved and, you know, most of the testing's done. So there's exciting times mm. ahead. So we're going to take a break, folks. And then, uh, in a moment, we'll be talking to Dr. James Watson. He's a wildlife, con- uh, from the Wildlife Conservation Society in the University of Queensland. And we're going to be talking about migratory birds. And I hadn't really thought about this, but, um, they cross across a lot of land masses where people don't give a toss about birds mm-hmm. that's pretty problematic it's <laughs> like having a 747 that can't land anyway uh here's some music and we'll be back in just a few moments three triple ah. yeah we're back you're listening to einstein and gago i think dr lauren's uh back in Control? You okay? Yeah, yeah, so we're just having chat. Yeah. Giggling, giggling away there during the break. Yep, yep. Uh, that's alright, just leave her alone. We, uh, <laughs> we are joined on the phone now by Dr. James Watson. He's from the Wildlife Conservation Society and the University of Queensland. James, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Now, James, you're working on uh, the issues faced by migratory birds. Um, give us an idea of what we're talking about here, because I, I suspect a lot of people don't really have a good mindset of the uh, the sort of journey that these birds go on and what, are, what is entailed in that journey. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so one in nine bird species around the world are migratory, which means they fly from their breeding, uh, breeding locations to a non-breeding location. And some of these birds fly enormous distances. Um, they fly, uh, Arctic turns, for example, flies the equivalent distance to the moon and back three times over their life. Wow. Uh, many of the many of the birds which we see in Australia on our shorelines um, have have flown from Siberia um, or Alaska. They breed up there in the, in the northern summer, and they'll fly down here um, uh, in, and use our mud flats and our estuaries to, um, to to feed themselves up during our summer. So they're flying, you know, basically around the world at least once a year. Mm-hmm. So, so in in terms of um, the the timing that they do that, I mean, presumably this is. This is based on seasons and available food supply and, and I guess where predators are at certain times of year. Is that, is that what um, triggers their moves? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so a few things trigger uh, when they migrate. Um, they're still trying to work that out, but it's got to do with uh, uh, moon. They can navigate by the moon and also they really are zoning in on when the most the best food availability is. So um, in the northern summer, um, when it's during our winter, um, there's a huge amount of food available um, in Siberia and Alaska. And they go there to breed. It's a fantastic habitat. They, they can nest amongst the bogs and the swamps there. But then when it gets cold in, nor- in the northern winter, they'll fly south um, and they'll fly across Asia or across South America and across the Pacific to get to Australia and to feed on our shores. So they're, they're zoning in on both um, um, triggers around the moon and the sun and also mm-hmm. um, and the fact that, you know, uh, the fact that they're chasing warmth, effectively. They're chasing summers at both, yep. both seasons. Now, presumably, as they, they move around the globe, I mean, they must go from areas where conservation policies are quite strongly in place to ones where they're essentially non-existent. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's the challenge and, and, and the scary thing about migratory species. I mean, migrants are an incredible ecological phenomenon. A lot of these species are incredibly light. We're talking about, you know, five ounces of the weight mm-hmm. of a bird flying, you know, across the world back and forth. It's an incredible, magical journey, but they have to stop on the way through. They have to stop from the from the, the, the Arctic and the Siberia to actually get to Australia. And what we're seeing is massive declines in those stopover sites in terms of the quality of the habitat, especially in the yellow sea in China, 
China, Taiwan, North Korea, South Korea, huge amounts of habitat loss. And this is meaning that um, these migratory species are quite literally unable to land and feed to, re- to get um, food to keep on going on their journey, and they just don't make it. And we're seeing massive declines, therefore, in the number of birds making it to Australia. Hmm. Do, I mean, when you look at that um, scenario compared to just the natural number that get there, how, how different is it? Because I can imagine, you know, when, it, when a group of birds migrates, there's a certain number of them that just don't make these incredible distances anyway. But what, what are we seeing here? Is it a substantial difference from that natural variation? Yeah, there is. There is. I mean, normally, um, you know, birds, obviously, to sustain a population, you need, you need to produce enough individuals that will replace yourself. But at the moment, for many migratory species, we're seeing a third of the population turning up every year. So we're seeing over, you know, the t- a space of 10 years, massive collapses in birds which were once common. And what is scary, it's, it's only recently this has happened, the last five to 10 years through as China develops, as Taiwan develops, as, as areas in Southeast Asia, you get lots of land reclamation and therefore loss of habitat. We're seeing a rapid major decrease in these um, birds. So, you know, we, you know, curlews, which are a big wading bird, which most people will probably be familiar with the call and probably familiar with the bird. It's got a very long down curve bill. Mm. They are down one third of the, po- they are now one third of what they were just five years ago. And the Australian government have listed them as critically endangered. So this is why we wrote this science story is that we're alarmed by this and we realise that the only way to save them is by working with those nations um, in, 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 um, in the stopover routes to actually save some habitats so they can actually get some food in them and be able to continue the journey. Mm. James, it's Dr Lauren here. I'm, I'm quite intrigued by, you know, obviously the, this loss of habitat along their route. Are they able to change their route at all? Like, uh, have we seen any changes in the way that they would make the journey to compensate for that? Look, I've, that's a really interesting question. What, we, what we're seeing is that there is definitely shifts in terms of some of these migratory pathways. And in fact, over, you know, um, climate change uh, histories, they have clearly shifted their roots. But what, what we, um, what we're noticing is they're not shifting quickly enough. Mm. We're not, we, there's not a shift that actually can catch up to the population that will actually sustain itself. Mm. What, what we think though, with this rapid climate event we're experiencing as well, is this may be potentially a positive thing for these birds because it may force them to go down another route. Um, because they may not be able to breed in the areas they used to breed in, therefore they need to lo- change their breeding location, which will therefore change their route back to the southern wintering grounds. I mean, that's a hypothesis, and it may be a, you know, a lucky, um, way get out of jail free card if they're able to do that. Conversely, it could be the opposite. Climate change could force them to go to areas which means they have to fly over these, these sites along the Yellow Sea, and, may, and as habitat loss occurs there, mm. We have more, more and more chance of these species going extinct. Mm. James, it's Dr. Crystal here. I think it's amazing to identify this as a global issue. That you know, in Australia, we can do whatever we can, but we really need a global effort um, to have impact. Where do you see the, the wins? Like, who, who who are you working with that's giving you hope in terms of being able to turn this situation around? Look, look. There, I mean, what gives me hope is that there is a convention for migratory species, which a lot of nations have signed, signed on to. And what I think, what, um, what we see in some nations across the across this uh, pathway, it, some nations like Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, really understanding that they're losing their natural legacy as well. It's not just Australia losing their natural legacy, or Russia, or the United States. These birds go through their countries. They are, they are, a lot of people in those countries really like them, like mm. the, the fact that these things are, are stopping over and coming through. And therefore, we're seeing some action. 
But the truth is, you know, as you've picked up, the only way we're going to succeed in conserving these species is if nations cooperate with each other. And that may mean Australian government sending money overseas to actually protect habitats in another country that allow enough birds to be able to stop over and feed and then get to Australia, which is something that we rarely see in conservation, this money leaving national boundaries. But it, the fact is it's the only way we're going to save these species is to do active conservation in another foreign land. Uh, James, this is Dr. Ray. I, I was wondering, are, are we, is part of this, because this is such a kind of counter for people that don't understand how migratory birds work, such a counter counterintuitive impact. It's about the pathway. And are we a little a victim of our own success in conservation messages that get, go through the media or National Geographic videos where they always talk about the importance of the breeding ground, particularly for birds? where it's not something that's really been shown in the public, I think, as much as it's important to have the island and the safe island for a breed to bird, where the pathway message seems to be one that never, I don't remember seeing as strong in conservation messages before. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I think conservation for years has really been about locking down those places which are very important to the breeding success of an animal or a bird or a plant. You know, and, that, and that's if you look at the growth of the protected area system globally, you see this incredible growth over the last twenty years. I think like there's been up, up to eight million square kilometres of land protected in the last twenty years, based on this, this these successful um, pushes by the conservation movement to protect habitats that where species breed. But migrants, as you say, migrants actually need more than that. They're tricky little buggers to save because you need to save them not just in the breeding grounds but stopover sites in the wintering grounds. And we haven't been successful enough in making that argument. That's, mm. that's clear. I think, and I think that um, it's a nuanced argument. And I think I think really gets the tricky space is getting people to understand that to save these species, you need to have to send money overseas. That is, I think, against the grain of a lot of conservation people around the world. They like to save their own local patch. And, not, you know, that's where, the most fo that's where they want to focus. But really, you won't have species survive mm. in the long term unless you, if we change that mindset a bit. James, I think it's amazing just looking at the information sent through uh, prior to your interview that of the 1,451 migratory bird species, 1,324 had inadequate protection. This this seems like an incredible percentage. And can, can you comment on you know how close those 1,324 are to being in severe difficulty? Is it all of them that are suffering the same fates, or, or are some of them in the? I can imagine some would have pathways that aren't so so problematic. Look, yeah, look, excellent question. Like, obviously, not all species are going to be blinking out in the near future. Um, there are some things which are in decline but are still quite stable. But we, we think at least 10 to 20% of migratory species globally are in serious trouble. Mm. That means, and, and what I mean is that, you know, by the time it's my daughter's four year, fourth year old birthday today, by the time she's 14, um, there's likely those species won't be on the planet. And it's, that's dramatic, you know, between, you know, um, and, and as I say, I think losing a species, extinction is terrible, losing a species anywhere is a very sad thing for humanity, but a migratory species, which is an ecological phenomenon, which is just mm. unbelievable once you start thinking about it, we're losing a process as well as a species, and that, that's yeah. the thing which makes me very sad, and that, you know, um, these things, if you want to be inspired, just reading about an Arctic turn and how far they fly from the Antarctic to the Arctic, back and forth every year, 
they're tiny little birds. Yeah. It's an extraordinary effort. So um, they're they're a lot better at doing it than we are. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> James, um, right. thanks so much for talking to us, and and I hope your article in Science, which is a, a very prestigious journal, gets um, seen by the right people, and hopefully um, some of the countries involved here, or countries that need to be more involved, um, take some notice of that and start doing something because they are extraordinary um, little critters that uh, manage to do this big trek, and hopefully we'll have them round for a lot longer. So, Dr. James Watson, uh, thank you very much for chatting to us, and happy birthday to your four-year-old daughter. Yeah, thanks very much. My pleasure. Dr. James Watson is from the Wildlife Conservation Society in the University of Queensland, and that interview, uh, thankfully, was set up for us by the Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions, one of the ARC um, Centres of Excellence. Jeez, it's a scary uh, prospect, the numbers mm. there, isn't it? It's really um, quite disturbing. I, I, you guys may have noticed I've got scratches all over my arms because I was out at um, the Dandenongs yesterday uh. um, feeding some birds and... They're amazing, but boy, they hang on tight. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Non-migratory, those ones, non-migratory. Oh, I think it's fantastic that Australia is showing some leadership in this area, though. Yeah. Like, you know, really that the driving force for some of this is coming coming yeah. from here. Yeah. Um, really shows the commitment that we've got to Indeed. making a difference in that area. Yeah, and we've we've had a number of guests from this particular Centre of Excellence on over the last year, and all of them have been looking at issues like this that are very, very critical internationally and not just locally, and it's great to see a centre working on those sorts of problems and at the highest level. I mean, this work published in, in science at the absolute highest level, so congratulations to them, and I'm sure we'll get a lot more of their guests coming in. In fact, I think we have another one next week, so we'll get them on over the, the coming time. It's, uh, what is it, 11.33? We're going to take a short break, and then we have a guest from the Murdoch uh, Children's Research Institute coming in to talk about mitochondrial diseases. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to 3 Triple R. 3 Triple You are listening to 3 R. It's Einstein and Gogo. It's a science program. If you haven't worked it out by now, um, you're in trouble. But uh, we do have another scientist in the studio, a PhD student, Nicole Lake, who is from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Welcome to Einstein and Gogo, Nicole. Hi, it's great to be here. Now, you work in an area that we were talking about this just a few minutes ago, actually, um, and that is sort of uh, these genetic diseases. In particular, your area is based around how food is converted into energy. First of all, before we get into the diseases, how does the body do that? I mean, we eat stuff, and then how do the cells get to use that? Yeah, that's a good question. So within every cell in our body, we have a machinery that are called mitochondria. Mitochondria are the site where the reaction occurs where food is converted into energy in the form of a molecule molecule called ATP. So in patients with mitochondrial disease, they have a problem with their mitochondria. And more specifically, they have a a problem with the process of converting their food into energy, and so they have a reduced energy supply. So it's working to some degree, though, is it? I mean, otherwise they'd be presumably dead. Yeah, that's a good point. So there, there is some kind of residual um, performance in the mitochondria, but it, um, with mitochondrial disease, it's not uncommon that patients will appear healthy for the first few years of life right. and then slowly start to develop symptoms. So at a certain point, potentially when energy demands increase during childhood, that's when the problems start to occur. And does it occur throughout the body? I mean, we have all these different cell types. Do we have one type of mitochondria in all of them and it fails across the board or is there certain types of cells in the body that fail first? 
Uh, that's a good question. So um, the first point probably to make is that, um, as you might expect, parts of the body that have the highest energy demands are most mm-hmm. affected. So these are um, places like the brain, liver, heart and muscle systems. Um, there has been uh, several studies done and from what we understand, mitochondria are very similar throughout different cell types in the body. Something that might differ is the number of mitochondria that you have mm, in each okay. cell. Yep. So these high energy demand systems have uh, higher numbers of mitochondria. Okay. Now, I remember last year I had the privilege of um, emceeing one of the Healthy Kids Seminars public events that the Murdoch put on down at the Children's Hospital. And your your boss, your supervisor, Professor David uh, Thornburn, was the speaker. And I remember a, a statistic where he said over the last 10 years he's successfully diagnosed 200 people, well, children, um, with certain types of mitochondrial disease. And when I first heard, heard this, I thought, oh, he hasn't been working that hard. Ten years only to, seemed like a very small number. But then as I heard, you know, the difficulties, it seemed extraordinary that he'd managed to diagnose these. Now, this is this is the area you're working in of how to do this. What, why is it so hard, given you see these kids, they're obviously having these problems. Why is it so hard to diagnose them? Um, so I guess, first of all, if we start with um, a doctor making a diagnosis of the mm-hmm. disease, mitochondrial disease is actually quite a difficult diagnosis to make because um, there's a phrase we use in the field that uh, any symptom can affect any organ at any age. Okay. So this means that it's quite difficult for a doctor to recognise a specific pattern of symptoms. In terms of making a genetic diagnosis where we find the specific mutation that's disrupting a gene that's affecting the mitochondria... Um, it's a, if we imagine that DNA has three billion letters, so it's mm-hmm. a string of letters, it's like finding one typo in okay. that long string of letters. Right. So it's like finding a needle in a haystack. But um, part of my research and my training um, uh, gives me the tools to know um, what approaches and strategies to take to try and find the answer as quickly as possible, yeah. but it's still difficult. So how do we do that? I mean, it, it's regardless of how much training you've had, it still sounds like a needle in a haystack. H- how do you actually go about finding that one error or that one problem in someone's genome? So um, we use several strategies um, to, first of all, start off by looking at genes that are most relevant or most likely to be affected in these patients. Um, so we know to date there are around 200 different genes. Um, when you have a mutation in these genes, you can uh, have mitochondrial disease. Um, but beyond that, we know that there's about 1,500 genes um, that are the recipes for proteins that live inside mm-hmm. the mitochondria. So these are um, the most relevant genes that could affect the mitochondrial performance. So we target our our analysis to looking at these genes first. Um, But sometimes um, you have a patient with mitochondrial disease and you look at all of the known disease genes and Mm. you still don't find an answer. So part of my research is also about understanding what that might mean and how do we find the answer in these patients. So, Nicole, I know with your research you're looking at a particular syndrome called Lee syndrome, which is apparently the most common mitochondrial disease. So how, how common is that and, and what does that actually present as? Like, What would the children come to the doctor with? Yeah, so that's correct. So my project focuses on Lee syndrome, which, as you mentioned, is the most common childhood form of mitochondrial disease. So mitochondrial diseases in general, um, a life-threatening form affects around 1 in 5,000. Lee syndrome um, affects about 1 in 40,000, although in some parts of the world the incidence is higher. So Lee syndrome is a neurodegenerative disorder, which means that the brains of patients with Lee syndrome are most affected. Um, so patients um, might appear healthy at first and then start to develop symptoms, say, around 12 months of life, which might um, 
in the form of neurodegenerative symptoms like losing skills, um, developing deafness or blindness, seizures. It's a pretty horrible condition. Mm. It, it's it's one of those things where um, th- there's. I mean, I've often heard this term used: the odyssey that the parents and the families go through. Give us an idea of the timing um, in terms of this diagnosis. I mean, is this literally I turn up with a four-year-old with some problems and I, I walk out at eight with an age 10 child and we maybe have an answer? I mean, what sort of, what sort of odyssey are we talking about there? Uh, I think that snapshot could be a fairly accurate description well, to the disturbing. experience <laughs> of many patients that yeah. have mitochondrial disease or Lee syndrome. So as I mentioned before, it's a difficult diagnosis to make because there's such variability between patients mm. that have the same disease uh, and even have a mutation in the same gene. Um, so... Yeah, these patients experience and their families experience a journey, what we refer to as a diagnostic odyssey, where they Mm. go through many years of seeing many different doctors, many specialists, having many different misdiagnoses and tests until they get to a place where they have, we might, we think that you might have mitochondrial disease. Um, and then that's where I guess we would come in in terms of investigating, uh, the genetics and whether we can find evidence for that. So at that point, I mean, this must be, you know, in terms of diagnosis and actually having someone, you know, often people don't realize how important this is but you know the the label gets stuck on your form so there's support groups there's support money there's all these other things that go at that point there must be that must be quite transformational for some of these patients absolutely i think um, being able to pinpoint the specific genetic cause of the disease in these patients marks the end of that uh, long Mm. diagnostic journey Um, and as you said it it can provide access to support groups it may point um, to available therapies in some cases that hadn't been considered considered before um but i think it also um i mean it's of such value to the family as you can imagine um Mm. watching a child or um, a family member go through such a a tough disease like this yeah yeah so uh we've started to see um interventions around mitochondrial disease for families who are looking at being able to have mitochondrial donors in the uk i believe that's correct um could you maybe talk to us a little bit more about what this means in, in for your research field Yeah, so mitochondrial disease uh, is somewhat unique because it can also be caused by mutations in mitochondrial DNA, which is a small subset of your total DNA um, that is only passed from mother to child. Uh, And so typical um, IVF reproductive technologies currently and uh, at this state in Australia don't um, allow for a mother who is carrying a mitochondrial DNA to have a child that won't also have that mutation because it's passed from mother to child. So in the UK, they've uh, recently allowed uh, a technology where... um, a donor egg is provided that has donor mitochondrial DNA that does not have the mutation in question and they um, place the nucleus which contains the large majority of the genes. So if we consider there are about 20,000 genes, only about 35 are in the mitochondrial DNA, so 0.1%. Um, and so yeah, it, it enables women who carry these mutations to not have to feel the burden of passing this mutation to their children. Mm. And presumably some of the women who have these mutations though don't have mitochondrial disease is that correct i mean that is correct so i guess there's another complication with this factor in terms of as i mentioned before some cells can have multiple copies of mitochondria 
Um, but the other thing is each mitochondria has multiple copies of, mi- of mitochondrial DNA. Mm. So if you imagine you have a pool and say you have 100 copies of mitochondrial DNA, you might have 10 copies that have the mutation or you might have all 100 that have the mutation. Oh. And it's the number of copies that determines um, whether you will show symptoms and how badly you'll be affected. Mm. And I guess that's where being able to diagnose and understand the genetic underlying genetics of these mitochondrial diseases where your research comes in is really critical being to be able to provide those answers to families absolutely so um especially for families who um uh, considering having another child if we can provide that genetic diagnosis in a timely manner it will enable them access to these reproductive technologies mm, mm. and and certainly down at your facility these these uh, the genomics alliance is providing that um, ability for you or will be in in short order one final question for you nicole um we, we've noticed over the years this massive increase in the number of children who are coming in with allergies um, to the children's hospital and that there's that climb in the mitochondrial space, is there a similar um, sort of increase? I mean, I, I remember sort of 15, 20 years ago, I'd never even heard of this sort of thing, whereas now it seems I'm hearing about it every other week. Has there been an increase in the number of children who are presenting with mitochondrial disease or, or are we just aware of it suddenly? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. So it's it's more about the increased awareness for mitochondrial disease rather than there being an increase in the incidence. Um, the, the part, part of the reason why it hasn't been better known in recent times is because it's a relatively new group of disorders. So it wasn't until about 20 years ago or 25 years ago that the first disease gene was found um, and... So there's been such a rapid increase in our knowledge in the last 10 years in particular mm. um, and so now uh, awareness is getting out there and filtering through doctors um, as well uh, to better recognise this disorder and refer it to the appropriate specialists. Yeah, yeah. I, I, as I say, I remember emceeing that event and, and there was a lot of members of the public there, most of which were involved in either families themselves with these issues or, or knew someone who, who did have the, the same issue and there was a desperation there for answers and, and I hope your your research and, and the research of the group continues to provide some of those answers for people in short order because it's a, as you say, it's a diagnostic odyssey that you do not want to be on. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Nicole Lake is a PhD student at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute has been our guest today. You're listening to Einstein and Go on 3 we're going to play uh, some music for you and we'll be back in just a moment. Three. Triple. Ah. Now, uh, I had mentioned earlier on the show that I read two books. I'm very proud of this. I don't get to read. I, I don't get time Good job, Dr. Shane. I actually don't even know how I got to do it. I mean, you know, to be fair, they're really short, but, um, <laughs> but still, one of the two books I read was a book called The Ten Most Beautiful Experiments by George Johnson. And, uh, it was one of these books, you know, there's this group called the Folio Society. They, they reproduce these books in beautiful covers and so forth. And, um. Anyway. Don't tell me you judged a book by its cover. <laughs> No, I, 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 I saw a couple of books that were, you know, in this list and then my wife bought them for me. So, um, and I've also bought, um, you know, Darwin's Evolution of Species and so forth in this form. So I think it's nice, it's nice to have old worldly books every mm. now and then. I think it's, you it know. would look good on the coffee.
coffee table, even if you don't yeah. read it. Well, this one has, has a cover it goes in too, like a little sleeve. Oh, that's nice. Excited. But, you know, anyway, I started reading this book. Uh, it was pretty nice. And basically what it's about is some of the sort of most seminal experiments that have ever occurred in science and the sort of beauty of them. And, um, you know, some of them, for example, around Galileo and his um, early work on motion and how things were moving. Um, William Harvey and the, the way the heart operates and beats because you know back in the day people didn't know how this works and it's amazing how people what what they thought was being beated around the body mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. not blood with oxygen but all these other sort of vital forces and things that kept us alive it's really incredible um of course isaac newton but but not no no folks not the apple um, no no not the apple <laughs> but you know isaac newton was the one who worked out that um white light was made up of color and how that worked and so his early experiments with prisms and being able to split white light into colors and then back again mm. put it back into white light was seen as pretty uh, cool because people didn't know what light was back then okay. was uh, was Marie Curie's experiment on there where she processed literally truckloads and truckloads of soil to isolate radioisotopes bum bum was not can I ask yeah. how many of the experiments of the top ten were conducted by women well uh you know, as I said, this wasn't my favourite book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let me read out the names and you can make your own judgment. Uh, you know, Galileo, William, Isaac, Antoine, Luigi, Michael, James. Uh, Michaelson, what's his first name? I can't remember. Um, Ivan, mm -hmm. <laughs> Robert. If you're counting, folks, that's ten. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, oh no, the ten so, most beautiful experiments, and none of them. Yeah, look, oh, there was uh, to give the author some credit. There was commentary about that and why that one wasn't in, amongst others that weren't in. So there were some really interesting ones, you know, with Faraday and um, with Joule, um, James Joule, about working out what energy um, was and how that should be measured mm. and so forth. But what I found with this book, and I, and I have to be fair on the author, is the first two or three chapters of this book, so, you know, Galileo, um, William Harvey and the Mysteries of the Heart and Isaac Newton were fabulous. I really loved them. They were really intricate. They told the story. It put you in the time. You felt like you were back there, you know, really learning about these experiments. But it just seemed as though it trailed off. Um, as the book went along, the, the standard to me just seemed to drop off a little bit. It was a good book, and, and I'm I'm a real um, stickler for trying to finish books, um, mm -hmm. and I get really annoyed if they're crap because I, I have this. I don't know, it's like switching the light on three times kind of thing for me. <laughs> I have to um, I have to finish a book. Um, I did actually enjoy finishing this book. It was it was a good read, but I just felt the standard at the start was a little higher than the standard at the end of the book, and it could have just been the experiments. Obviously, the author put their favourite ones first, mm. and um, and you could tell. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. Um, you know, Galvani and the the galvanic cell and mm. how all that worked. You know, there was a lot of stuff in here. Michelson, in particular, you know, the search for the ether. You know, he he set out to prove that it existed, and no matter how hard he tried. He proved that it didn't. I mean, this is one of those great moments in science where being a true scientist doesn't mean fudging your results and saying, hey, I found it. Mm. It's saying, you know what? It doesn't exist. Mm. It's nonsense. So um, a, a good book. Uh, I'd say you know, worth a read, but not in my sort of top reading. Mm. Uh, you know, how, how do you see it for a non-scientist? Non yeah, look, I think it was quite nicely written in, in that regard. Um, I'd done every experiment pretty much in this book during my undergrad years. Um, so it was for me, it was a nice refresher of, of some of that work. Um, I think a non-scientist might struggle a little bit with some of it, but it was really interesting. Some of it was very well written. That's why I say it's probably worth a look, but pick and choose the chapters you like. That would be my, um, my response. So yeah, the 10 most beautiful experiments by george johnson have a look if you dare 
We're almost out of time, believe it or not. Um, we're going to have to hand over to Edith in a second. Dr Crystal, thanks so much. Good to see you. Oh, it's great to be back talking science in I Melbourne, know. the science city. It is. The science city, is Melbourne's it? Melbourne's a science city, oh, there definitely. You go. There you go. <laughs> Dr Lauren, good to see you and we'll see you again soon. Definitely. You're in the uh, next couple of weeks, both of you. And Dr Ray, Dr. great Dr. to have you on. Yes, thanks. Yep. Um, this week I spent the week at the in Kilo at the Australian College Student oh, Conference. Yeah. Which uh, it's its thirtieth time, or, and uh, wow. just because he was curious about radio, one of my PhD students is actually in the green room, and he wanted to see it. And what's noteworthy of him, aside from the fact he talks more than me, is he won the best student prize, the Healy Hunter Award this oh, year. Congratulations so on that! That's a, that's a good effort. Uh, Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed and sneezing during the show. And uh, <laughs> we will hand over now to Edith. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll be back in a week to give you more science. Have a great Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.